The Law School of America, Undermining Reconstruction State Governments After the American Civil War, the United States government established Reconstruction-era governments in the states of the former Confederacy that included black and carpetbagger representatives. The loss of political power by the formerly dominant white supremacists led to resentment, protest, and the formation of paramilitaries and parallel governments. Occasionally, tax resistance was used as a tactic to withdraw financial support and political legitimacy from the Reconstruction governments in favor of the white supremacist parallel governments. For example, tax resistance was used as a tactic by South Carolina Democrats in the months leading up to the collapse of the carpetbagger administration of Republican Daniel Chamberlain and his replacement by former Confederate Army officer Wade Hampton III. White supremacist gubernatorial candidate John McHenry established a parallel government in Reconstruction Louisiana, in opposition to the carpetbagger government of Governor William Pitt Kellogg, and urged sympathetic citizens to pay taxes to his government rather than the Kellogg usurpation. Railroad Bond Shenanigans In the 1870s a number of American localities were victims of railroad bond swindles. Promoters would ask the residents to vote to issue bonds to pay for the running of a railroad line to their area, these bonds being backed by the local tax base. In theory the economic growth that would come from the new rail line would more than pay for the bonds by the time they were mature and the bondholders needed to be paid off. In fact, the railroad never materialized and the bond promoters vanished with the money. Some of these localities organized and refused to honor the bonds they had issued. Because by the time the bonds had matured they had likely been sold to new owners who did not participate in the original fraud, the court system was not usually very sympathetic to the defrauded taxpayers. But this led to some notable examples of organized tax resistance in the United States. For instance, in Cass and St. Clair counties, Missouri, local judges were elected who refused to enforce higher court rulings in favor of the bondholders that would have forced the county to inflict a tax in order to pay off the bonds. For a time, the judges held court in a cave in order to evade their eventual jailings for contempt of court. In Steuben County, New York, the bondholders succeeded in forcing the community to create a property tax to pay off the bonds, but property owners refused to pay the tax and rallied to the support of those whose property was seized for failure to pay, successfully disrupting tax auctions. In Kentucky, refusal to assess or pay taxes to pay off the bond swindle persisted for decades. Some towns refused to elect sheriffs or public officials of any kind, or no candidates could be found for the positions, so that nobody was legally qualified to assess taxes or engage in property seizures for failure to pay taxes. Local judges went into hiding to evade the rulings of higher courts. Armed citizens intimidated outsiders who tried to come and collect taxes by force. Women's suffrage. Tax resistance was a less important part of the women's suffrage struggle in the United States than it was in the United Kingdom, but it still played a role and had some notable practitioners. At the 1852 National Women's Rights Convention, Susan B. Anthony brought forward a tax resistance resolution. Resolved, that it is the duty of the women of those states, in which woman has now by law a right to the property she inherits, to refuse to pay taxes. She is unrepresented in the government. Lucy Stone refused to pay her tax in 1858, on the grounds that women suffer taxation, and yet have no representation, which is not only unjust to one half the adult population, but is contrary to our theory of government. Abby and Julia Smith were landowners in Glastonbury, Connecticut, who found in the 1870s that their property tax assessments kept rising relative to those of the male property owners of the area who could vote in local elections. They responded by refusing to pay taxes on no taxation without representation grounds, 
and their battle soon became a cause celebre among suffrage activists and sympathizers throughout the country, in part thanks to the sisters' knack for publicity. Anna Howard Shaw's automobile was sold at tax auction in 1915 in a celebrated tax resistance case. Dr. Shaw has always believed in the contention of the colonies that taxation without representation is tyranny and has consistently protested along this line when paying her taxes, she explained. Tax resistance by newly enfranchised women in Pennsylvania. As women won the right to vote in the United States, they sometimes also became vulnerable to taxes that had previously only applied to men. When this happened in Pennsylvania, the shock was accompanied by resentment that the school tax in question applied mostly to women living in rural areas, and not to those living in the largest Pennsylvania cities. This example of American tax resistance is particularly interesting because although it involved thousands of women in many parts of the state and persisted for several years, there is little evidence that the resistance was formally organized, and it wasn't accompanied by much in the way of open protest, no rallies, picket marches, petitions, manifestos, named organizations, political coalitions, or things of that nature. It seems to have been a form of leaderless resistance. Gross notes media references at the time that add up to over 4,000 women from Pottstown, Darby, Charleroi, Haverford, Media, Clifton Heights, and Freeland. At first the women were emboldened by a quirk in the law that forbade the arrest or imprisonment for non-payment of any tax of any female or infant or person found by Inquisition to be of unsound mind. It took the state legislature a couple of years to update that law after the women's tax resistance began, and several women were eventually jailed, briefly, for their resistance. Bond slackers during World War I Although the U.S. government raised some of its war budget via taxes, the most visible public war funding measure during World War I was the Liberty Bond Program. Citizens were encouraged to loan money to the government for its war effort through the purchase of bonds. Although the purchase of bonds was ostensibly voluntary, strong coercive pressure, up to and including mob violence, was directed at those who would not buy. Bond slackers, the popular term at the time for people who did not buy war bonds, or did not buy them in sufficient quantity, could be run out of town, might lose their jobs, have their property stolen or vandalized, might be tarred and feathered, otherwise tortured, coated in paint, threatened with murder, or subjected to hours of questioning by hooded interrogators in impromptu star chambers in the hopes of prompting them to say something that would incriminate them under the Espionage Act. Those who resisted such pressure and refused to buy war bonds included conscientious objectors to war such as Jehovah's Witnesses and members of traditional peace churches such as Mennonites, anti-capitalist radicals, and European immigrants from countries the U.S. and its allies were fighting. Herbert Lord director of finance for the War Department, considered this an organized effort to discourage and defeat the loan, and it was attributed to a conspiracy of pro-German agents. Property tax strikes during the Great Depression. The Great Depression introduced unprecedented tax burdens to Americans. While real estate values plummeted and unemployment skyrocketed, the cost of government remained high. As a result, Taxes as a percentage of the national income nearly doubled from 11.6% in 1929 to 21.1% in 1932. Most of the increase took place at the local level and especially squeezed the resources of real estate taxpayers. Local tax delinquency rose steadily to a record of 26.3% in 1933. Many Americans reacted to these conditions by forming taxpayers' leagues to call for lower taxes and cuts in government spending. By some estimates, there were 3,000 of these leagues by 1933. Taxpayers' leagues endorsed such measures as laws to limit and roll back taxes, 
lowered penalties on tax delinquents, and cuts in government spending. Partly as a result of their efforts, 16 states and numerous localities adopted property tax limitations while three states instituted homestead exemptions. While taxpayers' leagues usually favored traditional legal and political strategies, a few promoted tax resistance. Probably the best known of these was the Association of Real Estate Taxpayers, ARET, in Chicago. From 1930 to 1933, it led one of the largest tax strikes in American history. ARET functioned primarily as a cooperative legal service. Each member paid annual dues of $15 to fund lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of real estate assessments. The suits, when finally filed, took the form of a 7,000-page, two-foot-thick book listing the names and tax data for all 26,000 co-litigants. The radical side of the movement became apparent by early 1931 when ARET called for taxpayers to withhold real estate taxes, or strike, pending a final ruling by the Illinois Supreme Court, and later the U.S. Supreme Court. Mayor Anton Cermak and other politicians desperately tried to break the strike by threatening criminal prosecution, revocation of city services, and the seizure of property. The association's influence peaked in late 1932, with a membership of nearly 30,000 people, a budget of over $600,000, and its own radio show. A failed legal suit, government countermeasures and infighting took their toll and the movement, having in large part accomplished its goals, declined thereafter. The emergence of a non-sectarian war tax resistance movement. Tax resistance motivated by conscientious objection to war had traditionally been practiced in the United States under the Christian theory of non-resistance as extrapolated by the historic peace churches, and its development had largely taken place within the context of those churches. Rare exceptions included the brief flowering of tax resistance among the New England transcendentalists like Henry David Thoreau, a small war tax resistance contingent in the late 19th century pacifist movement, and a few war tax resistors in small sects like the International Bible Students and Rogerines. After World War II, a non-sectarian war tax resistance movement began to come together and would develop its own practices of war tax resistance under a more secular theory of pacifism. Some of the figures in this early movement were members of the historic peace churches, such as Mary Stone McDowell, a Quaker who had resisted the Liberty Bond drives during World War I, but many others were not. Dorothy Day and Ammon Hennessy were from the Catholic Worker Movement, Ernest Bromley was a Methodist, Walter Gormley and Maurice McCracken Presbyterians, Juanita and Wally Nelson non-religious, for example. In 1948, the group Peacemakers formed to loosely organize this movement. This group would develop a pacifist theory of conscientious objection to military taxation that was not tied to a particular religious doctrine. They published a guide to war tax resistance in 1963 and developed tactics of resistance practice and of publicity that would lead to the growth of the movement, to a new resurgence of war tax resistance among the traditional peace churches, and to the establishment of nonsectarian war tax resistance as an ongoing part of the American scene. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America